Friends, good morning. If we can, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Today we'll be looking at verses 16 to 34. If we had not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kenson. I serve as a pastor at Bridgeport. So honored to be with you to open God's word together. And as you guys are flipping to Acts 17, just to remind you that we are back in the book of Acts for our sermon series. And in it, we see story after story of what it looks like to follow Jesus in a society and culture that largely does not follow him. You know, a lot of the skepticism and resistance that we see in our current society today around the Christian message is just as true as it was back 2,000 years ago. But what we see in the book of Acts is that the people, the believers, were faithful in sharing the gospel, and they lived it out. And it changed an empire. It changed the world. And the same can happen today. Now, in our verses today, we're going to ask an important question, but a tricky question. As a church, how are we to reach the people of our culture and stay faithful to the gospel? What is cultural engagement look like for us? You know, one of the best places to answer that question is right here in Acts 17, as we see Paul address the greatest thinkers and philosophers of that day in Athens. So let me just go ahead and read a section of our verses, and then we'll jump in, okay? So Acts 17, and let's, let's read verse 22 here, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arabacabus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore do you worship as unknown? This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, in John 17, Jesus prays for his followers, and he says that may they be in the world, but not of the world. You know, Jesus prayed this 2,000 years ago, and frankly, we're still trying to figure that out today. What does it look like as Christians to navigate a culture that largely does not care about God? How can we effectively reach those who don't know Jesus? Now, there's usually two errors that we must avoid when it comes to relating to culture. We need to avoid the error of isolation and assimilation. The error of isolation is removing ourselves from culture. We live off the grid. We make, you know, we move to some commune, right? We, we, we make our own jam and bread, you know. We convert a van into a mobile home. And some of you are like, oh, that's like my dream life. But here's the problem with this. When Jesus calls us to be salt and light, when he tells us to let our good deeds be seen by others so that they would give glory to God, how is that supposed to happen when we avoid the world and push unbelievers away. That is the error of isolation. The other mistake we make is assimilation. The problem with this posture is that we have blended in so much, you know, to look and sound like the world around us that we lose all our Christian influence and distinctiveness. That for some of us, our faith has become so private that if our coworkers found out today that you were Christian, they would be stunned. Whoa, 
We've been working together for five years now. I've never known you to be religious. Friends, which error are you more prone to make? You know, what we'll see in our verses here today is that the Apostle Paul, when put in the very center of power and thinking and cultural influence of the Roman world, he doesn't isolate nor does he assimilate. Instead, he participates by bringing a redemptive gospel influence. And he does this in three ways, and here are the points that are going to move us along. First, he engages with Christ-like love. Secondly, we need to, he engages with Christ-like truth. And then finally, he engages with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ-like love, Christ-like truth, and then the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, we reach the people of our culture by engaging with Christ-like love. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So Paul here is currently in Athens, and what has happened so far is that Paul right now is on his second missionary journey, bringing the gospel to Europe. So he's been to Philippi, Thessalonica, he's been to Berea, and every time he has preached the gospel, two things have happened. Revivals have been happening, and also riots. And in our previous verses, last week's sermon, the angry crowds followed Paul to Berea. So Timothy, Timothy and Silas send Paul ahead of them and tell Paul, Paul, you know what, it's getting crazy here in Berea. You know, why don't you go first to Athens? You know, we'll meet you there. But Paul, keep a low profile, okay? If we know Paul, that does not happen. Now, a little bit about Athens here. It was the heart of the Greek empire. The best thinkers and philosophers resided here. This is where we get the name Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Athens was also the birthplace of democracy, the idea of the democracy. Athens was a center of culture, center of intellect, the center of politics, and it was also the center of worship. Athens was filled with idols. It was estimated that Athens was filled with as many as 30,000 gods and goddesses. That you had Athena, the goddess of wisdom, Morpheus, the god of dreams, Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and fertility, Nike, the god of athletic shoes, okay? So in this cultural context, Paul is waiting, and he's walking around, and he gets provoked. He looks at all these idols, and his heart is stirred because Paul worships the one true and living God. Now, what Paul is experiencing here is not a sense of superiority over this culture, but an overwhelming burden for these people to know Jesus Christ. He is brokenhearted because he saw the bankruptcy and brokenness of these idols. That is through these idols he can see people desperately trying to figure out life, trying to know how to do life without God. And this is what an idol is. It's anything or anyone who takes the place of God in our lives. It's where we find our ultimate meaning, significance, and security. It's what you believe will save you. So these 30,000 plus idols all over Athens represented what people valued most. Athena, the goddess of wisdom, if you wanted to be smart, you worshipped her. Zeus, the, the god of rain, if you were a farmer, if you're in agriculture, that is who you worship. Nike, the god of victory, worshipped by athletes and warriors. Aphrodite, the goddess of, of sexuality, beauty, and fertility, if you wanted kids, that is who you worship. These gods all represented longings and desires of the human heart. And frankly, these idols 
are true of our own hearts. Now, it might not look like Greek statues, but it shows up in different ways. You know, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, made this cultural observation. He said that whatever buildings in your city are the biggest, those usually indicate your idols. Look at your downtown. Look at the massive financial institution. Look at the massive insurance buildings. Look at the massive billboards on the highways and what they're promoting. Look at the size of Soldier Field and the passion some people have over a 20-year-old throwing a ball in tights. You know, it's just, it's just crazy. Paul saw these idols of culture, and it did not intimidate him. It did not seduce him. It stirred his heart. It grieved his heart, and it led him to compassionate engagement. Verse 16 and 17. Now Paul, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It doesn't say here that Paul was provoked because he wanted to show them how wrong they were. It doesn't say that he was moved so he bailed out and left Athens. It says here, that every day, every day, he shares the gospel in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Paul does not lash out or peace out. He engages. Now, let me ask you, does your heart get provoked? Does your heart weep over the lostness of our culture? You know, oftentimes, instead of being provoked, our hearts are numb. They're indifferent because we embrace the very same idols our culture worships. Oh, man, you know, like we're wondering, you know, how can I have what they have? You know, how can I have the same juice? You know, how can I have the same status, same comforts, same pleasures? You know, John Stein in his commentary on Acts said this. We do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul. And this is because we do not see like Paul. Instead of seeing culture as an objective observer, we've become indiscriminate consumers. If we want to have a heart like Paul, we must see through the lens of the gospel. We need to have a robust understanding of who God is, of what creation is, of what humanity is, of what sin is, of what redemption is, of what the kingdom of God is. And it's when you build this Christian worldview, it changes everything that you see. You see the arts differently, music differently, business differently, ethnicity differently, the poor, the orphan, and the widows differently. You see the oceans and the birds differently. You see money differently. You see sex differently. You see marriage differently. You see food and drink differently. You view death differently. You view the world differently. When you have an understanding of what God says in his word, it changes everything that you see. If you want your hearts to be provoked to compassion, we need to know what God loves and what God hates we need to know the beauty of God's original intent and design and what flourishing means and to see the bankruptcy and brokenness of sin. And it's when we understand this, we'll be able to engage the people in our culture with Christ-like love. That we're not going to be walking around, around our city disgusted by what we see, nor will we walk around like tourists just casually checking things out, but we will be missionaries in our culture. 
that oftentimes when we send our people overseas for missions work, they spend a lot of time just studying culture to understand the people there. We must do the same. And this is how Paul was provoked by the idolatry. He spent the time to observe that he was walking around and he was looking and seeing what was going on. We too need to listen and pay attention to our neighbors and our coworkers, listen to their hopes, their fears, their desires, their complaints, their protests. And when we do, we will see the idols that they're holding on to. We will see the saviors that they're longing for. As a church in the city, we must observe well. We must be deeply aware of our culture. We must be able to dialogue with, about it, yet be untainted by it. Paul looked at Athens not as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. That before Paul preached to the culture, he was first moved for the culture. This is why he engaged with Christ-like love. Here's a second insight. If you want to reach the people in our culture, we need to engage with Christ-like truth, okay? So Paul is sharing the gospel in the marketplace, and it's causing a stir. And some people are calling him a babbler, you know. But the strangeness of Paul's message leads him to an invitation to Ariacobus, which is also called Mars Hill because it's named after the god of war, Ares, okay? So it's at this highest point of Athens. It's filled with the best thinkers and philosophers of that day. And Paul now is standing there at Mars Hill, which is equivalent to standing before the faculty of Harvard, Yale, and Princeton all at the same time. It's incredible that not too long ago, he was singing in the prison cells, sharing the gospel. With, a, with, with, his, with his prison guard, right? With, with a slave girl. That was in Philippi. That wasn't too long ago. And now he's in the center of the Greek empire talking about the gospel. And this is what I love about this. Is that Paul is invited to the biggest stage in the Roman empire because he stayed faithful to the gospel message. You know, sometimes we can think that in order for me to reach the people of the culture with the gospel, I need to become the culture. I need to accommodate to the culture. That once I am loved and received by everyone, that's when I'll tell them about Jesus. You know, classic examples of this is the Christian artist who says that, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and keep, you know, Jesus out of my music and art. But once I make it big, I'm going to let everyone know I'm a Christian. Or the business person who hides their faith so they can climb the corporate ladder. But you know what, once I become the head of that company, I will bring my Christian impact. No. No, you don't get the world's attention by conforming to the world. You get its attention when you are faithful to God. Paul didn't get invited because he compromised the gospel. It's not because he truncated the gospel. It's because he preached Jesus and his resurrection. It's because of his very distinctiveness and the strangeness of his message. The people were like, we need to hear more. We need to hear more. And can I tell you, this is why as a church, now I'm going off script here. This is why for us as a church, every single Sunday, we are going to be super clear about the gospel. Because this is what makes us distinct. Why in the world would anyone outside of these walls want to come in here? If we're saying everything else that the world is saying, what we're going to talk about here is the person and life of Jesus Christ and to celebrate and worship him. Amen. That is what we're going to do as a church. So it's with this opportunity, Paul now, standing in Mars Hill, 
he brings the truth. And let's read this again, verses 22 to 28. So Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus, saying, men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. What therefore do you worship as the unknown? This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we have and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Okay? So Paul is provoked and motivated by Christ-like love, which leads to Christ-like Truth. Now, the verses that we have here are most likely an outline of what Paul really said because debates at Mars Hill normally lasted for several hours. Now, let me just unpack how Paul speaks the truth here, okay? First, notice this, that Paul seeks to build a bridge with them, not burn a bridge. He's seeking to build a bridge. His goal is not to win an argument, but to win the soul. Because Paul could have came out and he could have started swinging right away. Men of Athens, I perceive that you are a bunch of pagans who are going to burn because you worship false gods. Now, would have Paul been right? Sure. But would that have been a great way to start a conversation? No. No, it would not have been. So what does Paul do? He connects at their level. Then in verses 22 and 23, he calls his listeners religious. He points to their altar and says, hey, I noticed that you have an unknown God. He shows respect and points of agreement between him and the listeners. Also in verse 28, he quotes from their Greek poets, for in him we live and move and have our being, for we are also his offspring. Those are from two different Greek poets. He is quoting from people that the Athenians would have known very well. It's like a preacher quoting from the Wall Street Journal or lyrics from Bob Dylan or Justin Bieber. You know, it's stuff like that. Now, Paul would never, ever do this in a synagogue, which was his custom, that when he goes to the synagogue, he starts with the Old Testament. That's the starting point with those people. But Paul knows that in order to reach these philosophers and these thinkers who have zero knowledge of the God of the Bible, he starts at a much different starting point with them. Do you see? Paul is seeking to build a bridge, not burn a bridge. And it's when Paul does this, he begins to deliver the truth. And what he begins to do is that he begins to deconstruct their faith by showing just how lacking these idols are compared to the one true God. He says, now the men of Athens here, let me tell you something. This unknown God, I know this dude. I know this guy. He is the God of heaven and earth. Okay, don't call God dude, okay? This is just, okay, just don't do that, okay? He, he is not, he's not just the God of the sun. He's not just the God of the moon. He's not just God of the mountains. He is the creator of all. We did not create God. He created us. God is not your buddy. He is not your pal. He is not a peer. He is not some sort of vending machine. And actually, this is a point of contrast to what the Athenians believed about idols, that their idols 
were functional gods. They weren't worshiped for who they were. They were worshiped for what they could give to the people. That this is one of the chief characteristics of these idols is that they were very small views of God. That these were gods who were reduced in such a way that it could be easily explained and manipulated. That they were just a means to an end, to a better family, to, to, to more money, to a better life. The real and one true God is greater and better than all. He cannot be caged like an animal. The God of the Bible does not exist for you. You exist for him. And neither does he need us, nor does he need us to serve him. He is sufficient all within himself, which is, again, another point of contrast between the God of the Bible and these idols. That the true God is not served by human hands. Instead, he gives us life and breath. This is a d direct critique to the idols of the temple, which required servants to serve these idols, to clean them, to put food before them, and then to feed them in worship. Paul is so clever here. He's basically saying that if you need to make your God a sandwich, he ain't really much of a God. If he gets dirty and, you, and he needs you to give him a bath, ain't much of a God. Finally, Paul says in verse 27 that the God of the Bible is not far from any of us. And this is, again, another point of contrast. Because these idols that the Athenians believed in, they were often considered detached or uninterested in the affairs of people. Any of you who have studied Greek mythology, you know this, that they're all up there aloft. They could care less about what's happening down here. But the one true God... The purpose of him creating us, the reason he is moving people to all around the world, even in heartbreaking situations like the Afghan refugees, is so that we might seek God. Our God lovingly desires that people would discover him. God is not detached. He is not interested. He is not unengaged. He is near to all of us. And if I can just make a side point here. Some of you here today, you have had a hard week, hard month, a really hard season. That you're in the midst of tragedy, your heart is broken, and your faith is really shaken. And it's very natural just to ask, you know, God, are you still there? The answer is right here. Your God is not far. You can find him where you're seated today. You can find him if, you watch, if you're watching this broadcast or live stream. You can find God because he is not far from any one of us. Paul builds bridges and then engages with Christ-like truth. And what we see here is so important because when it comes to engaging culture to reach people, it's always both and, never either or. That for some of us, we need to grow with our heart of love towards the lost in our culture. But for others, telling truth is where we need to grow. That some of us might not be prone to lash out or peace out, but to cop out. That we're really good at welcoming others, but we never acknowledge the idols in their lives. And friends, I want to let you know that I'm not pointing fingers here. The very first person I'm going to point to is myself here because I struggle with people-pleasing. 
that there are so many times in my own head, in my own heart, that I've said to myself, oh, I love them too much. You know, I don't want to hurt them by telling them the truth of the gospel. You know, I'll wait for a better moment to do this, you know. I know I need to tell them about their sin and their, and their eternal separation from God. You know, but, I, you know, like, you know, no, I just, you know, I like them too much. I love them too much, you know. No. What's happening here is that I'm loving myself too much. I don't want things to be awkward for me. I don't like not being liked or respected. I don't want to be a mood killer. You know, I don't want to bring the party down here, right? This is not loving them too much. It's loving myself too much to tell the truth. There are people in your life right now, family members, boyfriend, girlfriend, neighbors, coworkers, and you just keep delaying the conversations. You just keep punting the football down the field here. To be loving is to tell the truth. To be loving is to deconstruct these false hopes and to expose the spiritual blindness. Otherwise, lost people continue to stay lost. Once again, it is both and. Christ-like love and Christ-like truth together. Because truth without love makes you a jerk. And love without truth makes you a coward. But when truth and love come together it will bring about gospel transformation. Amen? Amen. And this leads to the final point. If we want to engage culture to reach people, engage. Bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 29 to 31 here. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the time, times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, so Paul now has deconstructed their faith but now reconstructs a new faith for these Athenians. That now in light of the creator, in light of the one who sustains you, that in him we live and move and have our being, you must know that you are accountable to this God. That we live by the standard that he has set for us, and this is the bad news. Because of sin, we are alienated from God, and we stand guilty, and a judgment is coming for us. That is the reality. That is, that is the hard truth that you need to hear. But there is good news. Paul tells them to repent. Well, how is that good news? It's good news because repentance means that it's not too late. Repentance means that there is still opportunity to turn from our sinful idol worship and turn to the one true God. And this God does not just judge us in righteousness by his righteous standard, but he also provides the very righteousness we need to stand before him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus we see truth and love together. That in love, Jesus looked into our hearts and saw that it was full of idols. And in love, he came and revealed the truth about our sin. He did not hide it from us. He did not pretend that it didn't matter because it would lead to our destruction. In truth, Jesus exposes our sin. And in love, Jesus pays the price for our sin. 
that even though we're giving ourselves away to spiritual idolatry, that even though we're building our lives on everything else but God, that even though these idols are draining and enslaving us, Jesus loves us too much to let it destroy us. So Jesus doesn't lash out. Jesus doesn't peace out. Jesus doesn't cop out. Jesus reaches out. Jesus seeks out. Jesus pays out through his precious blood. That is the gospel. And it's on the cross we have the ultimate example of love and truth. So for those of us who are tempted to isolate, this is the good news that keeps us engaged. Because Jesus never came into the world, came into the, never came into the world and, and, and just didn't care about us, but he came into the world grieving over us. And because he did that, we would be saved. And for those of us who are tempted to assimilate and be like our culture, we have to remember that the good news is only the good news because we understand the reality of the bad news of our sin. We understand the bankruptcy and brokenness of our sin. If Jesus never said the hard truths, we would be lost forever. Do you see? We love people too much to leave the culture, and we love people too much to leave them with their idols. This is the power of truth and love. It doesn't leave people condemned. It doesn't leave people lost. It leaves people transformed. As a church, if we want to see the gospel move powerfully through our neighborhood, city, and world, we do it through the love and truth of the gospel. Let's read the rest of our verses here. Verse 32 to 34. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysus and Aeropiacite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. So after Paul shares the gospel to these Athenians, we see three reactions. First, we see the group that mocks. Secondly, we see the group that's thinking about it. And third, we see the group who believe. Can I just say that for anyone who faithfully shares the gospel with others, these are all three people you should know in your life. But what is sad, though, and I'm just being honest here, is that for some of us, we don't know any of these people in our lives. And the reason that this happens the reason we don't see groups two and three in our lives is for the fear of group one. That we don't want to be mocked. We don't want to feel awkward. We don't want to be not liked, regardless of what's at stake, regardless of eternity, regardless of their souls and lostness, because the worst thing that can happen is to not be liked. So we stay quiet and we rob ourselves of seeing the joy of watching God do incredible things. We miss the joy of seeing the Holy Spirit connect the spiritual dots for people. Friends, don't let fear keep you from being a vessel of God's love and grace to others. Don't let the fear of group one keep you from groups two and three. Group one is but a small price to pay in light of eternity. God has placed you here not to lash out, not to peace out, or to cop out. He has called you to be a redemptive presence in this culture. And for some of you here today, you're right there. 
you are group two, heading into group three, that you've been coming for a while, and God's now starting to open your eyes. You're starting to see the bankruptcy and brokenness of your idols. Can I encourage you today, right now, in this moment, would you draw close to this God? Would you draw close to your Savior? Because he is not far from any one of us. So friends, we're in a city that is surrounded by idols of our culture. Are you provoked? Will you engage? Will Christ's like love and truth? Let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you that you are a great and marvelous God. That, Father, even the words that we try to craft in describing you are so weak. Because, Father, you are just so great. God, we would pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church, Lord, not to isolate, not to assimilate, not to let fear, not to let people-pleasing, not to let any of these things or keep us, keep us, Lord, from sharing the good news of Christ, to keep us from engaging our culture. Because, Father, we have something to bring, we have something to offer, and that is your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to do that with great wisdom. Lord, help us to build bridges, not burn bridges. Help us to be winsome, help us to be wise, and help us to be courageous in these things. Father, we thank you that we don't have to look any further from the cross to see an example of this, where we see the perfect picture of love and truth playing itself out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.